It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva, here on this Sunday, January the 15th, 2017. Of course, if you want to check out the show, go to MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can check out the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, whatever podcasting service you desire. Uh, hope everybody's doing well here on this Sunday, another Cold, snowy uh, weekend here in the New York uh, area. Spring training and pitchers and catchers only a month away. Today uh, we have a guest, a returning guest, someone that I know you all know, uh, Bob Clappish of The Record will be joining me in just a minute. have a chance to catch up with Bob and see uh, what's going on. Uh, obviously talk about his Hall of Fame vote, talk a little bit about the Mets. Will Jay Bruce be in Port St. Lucie? It looks increasingly likely he will be. He wrote a piece about Wally Backman, and we'll get into that in a little bit, about Wally Backman and some of the words he had to say about his dismissal this past week and about being blackballed by Sandy Alderson and the Mets. And, of course, uh, the Mets rotation. It's really going to determine how uh, well this team does. And with pitchers and catchers a month away, Bob brought up some questions about Matt Harvey, how Bartolo Colon will be missed, and we'll get into all of that in a little bit. Of course, being that this is the Hall of Fame show that I had promised, I want to talk a little bit about the ballot, who I would pick if I had a Hall of Fame ballot. We'll get into Bob's ballot, uh, which he put over at the record, so we could talk about that. And uh, we'll get into some of the players that potentially do not belong in the Hall of Fame will come just short. I think we, you know, you know, we could all debate this. So this should be a fun show. So let me, let me kick this off. And I know we, we want to get to Bob in a little bit, but I want to kick this off first with, I guess, my point of view about how I would look at a Hall of Fame player. And this is just me, but I've always looked, and over the last couple of years, I've changed my stance on a couple of players. First, I look at precedent, and that's something interesting. You know, Who is currently in the Hall of Fame? When a player makes it, like a catfish hunter, who had some really good seasons, four 20-game seasons in a row, but then the rest of his career, he was, he was very good, not great. To me, that opens up or brings in other like players, other like pitchers, let's put into that scenario. So uh, that's the first thing. There's always precedent. I like to see who's there, because once you let somebody in, you kind of got to then look at those who are similar. I know that's not, it's not the court of law here, but that's something to look at. The second thing is historic run. I'd like to see about a decade of really top-notch numbers at, at being one of the best players in the league, if not in their position within the cluster of players in the league. Because there might always be someone better than you. There might always be an outfielder better than you. There might be a better center fielder. But for the most part, you want to have that 10-year, you know, 7- to 10-year run. You can't be Hall of Famer for one or two years and then fizzle, then come back in inconsistency. It's about consistency. It's about a run. Uh, and then the old, is the old number compilation, 500 home runs, 3,000 hits. I mean, those have been benchmarkers for years, and I don't think that's going to change, and you have to respect that. They were arbitrary at one point, but they were threshold. I guess it, that really ties into precedent when you think about it. And then there's great moments. I mean, sometimes a player may fall slightly short in some of the other areas that we just talked about, but they have historic moments. One of the players in the ballot that probably won't make it, maybe not ever, maybe maybe the tide will turn, but that's Sammy Sosa. He had a couple of historic moments. Kurt Schilling, historic moments. Maybe he falls a little short. We'll see. 
And, um, you know, that's how I look at a Hall of Famer. So let me, let me say I don't have a vote, of course. It doesn't matter. So what I think in the scheme of reality doesn't mean a hill of beans. But what I see as the Hall of Famers in this class, I'll start off with, with some of the obvious, which is obviously Bonds and Clemens. I, I forget about Peds. I don't even take that into consideration. PED does not make a difference to me. I would also put Pudge Rodriguez. That's two. Pudge Rodriguez would be my third vote, and you have 10 slots here. Vlad Guerrero, number four. Edgar Martinez, number five. Jeff Bagwell, number six. Tim Raines, number seven. Hoffman, number eight. Schilling, number nine. Manny Ramirez, number 10. So let me make sure I have it all here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So that's 10 slots. Now, I think this is one of those ballots where you have more than 10 Hall of Famers. I really do. So I think that there's a few that are going to get left off of here. Now, as of this recording, this is about 6 o'clock here on a Sunday, Mr. Uh, Ryan Thibodeau, uh, at Mr., not, at, not Mr. Tibbs on Twitter, he's been, for the last couple of years, taking the mantle from the guys at the Baseball Think Factory, and he's been collecting ballots. People send them who they vote for, and he's trying to predict. So he's collected about 47% of the ballots so far. And through 47% of the ballots, Tim Raines is at 92%, Bagwell's at 91%, Pudge Rodriguez is at 798 So right now, those three will be inducted to the Hall of Fame, along with Bud Seelig and John Sherholtz, who were uh, part of a, a Veterans Committee situation in July. Vladimir Guerrero's just short at 74.4%, Trevor Hoffman's just short at 73%, Edgar Martinez is at 68 the surprise jump is Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, those two guys who, uh, let's face it, were really uh, on the outs. Just a year ago, Bonds and Clemens, if you went back to uh, 2016, and I'll bring it up over here, were in the 40s. If you go back uh, a year before that, uh, I think they were even lower because of the whole uh, 2015. Let me bring it up over here. Uh, 2015 with uh, Bonds and Clemens. Got to bring up the spreadsheet. Oh, the spreadsheet's not giving me any totals over there, but I, I believe you know, there was a point in time where you didn't know if these guys were actually going to ever uh, make it. So you know, now you got a situation where they're in the 60s. Mike Mussini's at 61. Kurt Schilling is at 53%. Now, Reigns and Bangwell, who are the guys, and, and specifically Reigns, who has to make it this year. If Reigns doesn't make it this year, he's done. He's off the ballot. Bagwell's in year number seven, so he'll have a few more shots. Based on his tracking of net gains in terms of votes, and let me make sure I have this right, both Bagwell has 16 net gains in votes. He needed 12 to hit 75. It looks like he's gained the votes needed for induction. And uh, let's see here. We have Tim Raines, and I just looked. Yeah, Tim Raines needed 20 net gain votes for induction. He's at 26. So it looks like those two guys will make it. I'm not sure as you know, you got half the ballots here right now. It'll be interesting to see if uh, Pudge will hold on. Look, I'm a Mike Piazza fan. Mike Piazza was inducted last year. If Mike Piazza, who I love to death, is in the Hall of Fame, Pudge Rodriguez deserves to be there. Great defensive catcher. And, and one of the uh, situations which really stands out to me when you look at a Pudge Rodriguez, uh, specifically um, – he went to Miami, and when he went to Miami, how they went to the World Series, the impact he had there, Detroit, going over to Detroit, and how they uh, turned things around with him in Detroit. Uh, you know, that, that tells you the kind of player he was, the kind of leader he was, managing a pitching staff. The only knock I remember with Pudge 
that sometimes he would call, and this was from a, a former teammate who told me, sometimes Pudge would call fastballs because he wanted to throw people out. I mean, but those are things that, look, those are uh, tendencies that, you know, those are little things there for uh, the guy. I mean, he's a gold glover, Hall of Famer, uh, no doubt. So to me, uh, you know, there's no doubt that Pudge is a Hall of Famer. Now, I mean, Trevor Hoffman falling a little bit short here. Uh, you know, you could argue that. But look, if Mariano's in the Hall of Fame, and I know Mariano and his postseason success, even though it's a bit of a compilation stat to get 600 saves, I mean, that's, that's a ton of saves. And that's also a testament to longevity. It's also a testament to, and it's one of the things I talked about, to consistency. And we've seen how many closers haven't been able to year-to-year sustain success. So you could talk about the stat being cheap, but still, uh, Trevor Hoffman, in my idea, is a Hall of Famer. You know, one that's interesting, and really, uh, with Edgar Martinez now, uh, he's on the precipice. He's not going to make it this year. He's on the precipice. But Edgar Martinez, a year ago, was in the mid-40s in terms of support, less than 50% in terms of support for the Hall of Fame. And I keep hearing about the DH, and, and, and all you have to know about Edgar Martinez is... And this is a very important, I think, stat. I did not create it. It's, uh, there was a website that was put up many years ago, obviously an Edgar Martinez fan, but they cited a stat called premium offensive season. What is a premium offensive season? What constitutes a premium offensive player? And that would be a player who hit 300, had an on-base percentage over 400, and a slugging percentage over 500. All of those are benchmarks in different ways, in different segments of an offensive player that are elite. You have a 400 on-base percentage, you're elite. If you have a 500 slugging percentage, you're a power hitter. You hit 300, we all know you're, you're in the higher end of the success rate. Edgar Martinez has more of those seasons than Mickey Mantle. Think about that, than Mickey Mantle. And he had eight of them in his career, seven in a row. The only ones that on this ballot that have more than him are Barry Bonds, who had 11, and uh, actually he might have had more. I have to check that because this might be outdated here. I know that I counted that uh, Manny Ramirez had nine. I think Gary Sheffield had seven or eight of these. So think about that. There's a guy, and we'll get to the ones that are off the ballot that probably won't get elected. Let me, let me count Bonds here because let me make sure that 11 is accurate. So let's get this up here. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 8, 9, 10, 11. That's correct, 11. So that, that is all right. So Barry Bonds had 11 of that. So uh, I don't care if someone's a DH. Let me tell you something. You have seasons and seven in a row where you hit 300 on base of 400, slugging 500. You're a premium offensive player. That's a serious offensive season. You can bring up the kingdom, but if you look at his career, his splits between home and road are pretty solid pretty much you know, down the middle. And uh, yeah, he got a little spike in the kingdom, but he also in 1999, and that was towards the end of his career, but he still had another number of good years after that. He went to Safeco Field, which was not quite as hitter-friendly uh, when you think about it. So um, and, uh, the ones I think that there may be some debate, especially the ones that I left off, and if you want to look at Bob Klappish's ballot, he'll join us in a little bit. He voted for Bagwell, Reigns, Pudge Rodriguez, Vlad Guerrero, Hoffman, Edgar Martinez, Barry Bonds, Roderick Clemens. He voted for Schilling and Mussina. Now, even Vlad Guerrero, I mean, there's, to me, again, there's no doubt. Vlad Guerrero's, a, you know, that's one that we should say is in the category of Hall of Famer. I mean, there's a guy who went to Anaheim 
made an immediate impact. And if he had not played in Montreal earlier in his career, I think he would have probably had uh, more great postseason moments. I mean, there's a guy's first year in Anaheim. Uh, he wins an MVP. Um, and, and, you know, he's a guy who had – and let's see how many premium offensive seasons he had. Let's, let's count that. He had one, two, three, four. He had four. It tells you how, you know, as good as Vlad Guerrero was, he only had four, so it tells you. Sheffield up there with more. So, but, but anyway, the point is, it's certainly, uh, you know, he's got 2,500 hits. He's definitely, definitely Hall of Famer. Uh, the 3,000 hit plateau is becoming harder and harder for these guys to hit. That's the amazing part. And, and Vlad in 2011 stopped playing. You know, he might have been able to hang on for three more years in a diminished capacity, and maybe he could have got closer to that 3,000. But And that would have made him a shoo-in, but I don't think it's going to matter in this in this situation. However, he's probably going to fall short year one, so essentially he's going to get dinged, and a lot of voters put that year one into a big, um, almost like a um, uh, you know a different category. I don't think it really matters to me, but but so be it. So some of the players they got held off, or the players that I weren't wasn't able to vote for that I believe are Hall of Famer. Let me start with Schilling and Mussina. See, Kurt Schilling and Mussina. Um, See, I voted for Schilling. I, I originally had said no to Schilling. I voted for Schilling because when you start to look at some advanced statistics, he's right up there with other Hall of Famers like uh, Tom Glavin, Bob Gibson. Uh, let me see who else here. Um, let me uh, let me get this report up over here. So trying to move a couple of reports here as, as we do the show. Um, yeah, I mean Schilling here. I mean Tom Glavin, uh, Don Sutton. Jim Palmer, I could go on and on. He's right there in the same kind of statistical, advanced statistical category as Steve Carlton. I mean, he didn't, when you start to look at him, and that's the thing, he started really to go into his own at age 30. And the only knock I could say is that when you start to compare his numbers in terms of similar type of pitchers, when you take out wins above replacement, you see names like, Oral Hershiser, Tim Hudson, Kevin Brown, Bob Welch, very good pitchers, maybe not great pitchers. The difference is, is that when you go to Schilling, he had the incredible World Series run with the Diamondbacks uh, in that run uh, in 2001 where he, uh, he won 22 games the following year. He finished, he finished second in the Cy Young both in 2001 and 2002. Of course, Randy Johnson is his teammate. Then he goes to Boston in 2004, pitches the Bloody Sock game, wins 21 games for the Red Sox that year. Red Sox break the curse. So you take away, if Schilling pitches for anybody else in those seasons and has the same numbers, maybe we're not talking about a Hall of Famer, but those are the historic moments. And when you start to weight the numbers, hard to deny him when there's some precedent there. Now, do I think he's as good as a Bob Gibson? No. But I don't think there's much of a difference between a Kurt Schilling and a Don Sutton. Yes, I know Don Sutton won 300 games, but if you look at Don Sutton towards the end of his career, he was he was compiling towards the end of his career. And that's where this gets tricky, especially when you use compilation numbers like war. I mean, Don Sutton, uh, after the age of, I would say, you know, 32 in 1977, he was a nice pitcher, but in Anaheim and with the Dodgers later on, he came back later on in his career, Milwaukee. I mean, he wasn't, but he was a very hittable pitcher, a very league average type of pitcher. So there's precedent. The one that I left off, and I don't know, next year when there's more room, and next year's ballot is also going to include uh, Chipper Jones and Jim Tomey, who both Hall of Famers. So this ballot's going to be crowded for a while. And there are going to be some decent players left off. But 
maybe next year, but now I know that Musina had 270 wins, and I know Bob's going to come on and talk about how he pitched the American League East. He pitched during the steroid era. He was much better with the Orioles in the 10 years he played for the Orioles than he was for the Yankees. I wonder if he pitched for a lesser team than the Yankees and the offensive t- type of team that the Yankees were in the 2000s. If Musina would be even considered, he wouldn't have come in close to the 270 wins. But in the ERA, you know, about 3.70 with the Yankees, uh, he was a 13, 14, 15 game winner, which is certainly solid. Traditionally, both Schilling and Musina don't feel like Hall of Famers. Schilling does because of the great moments he had. Musina really never had that great moment. It's where I have a little bit of a harder time with him and where I feel he falls short. And then you look at a guy like Jack Morris. And you say to yourself, well, if Schilling gets in, Jack Morris should get in. But if Jack Morris didn't get in, because he had the great moments. He liked Schilling. He had the great moment. But sort of like Messina, he had more of the very good years in the American League East. So he's kind of – Jack Morris is kind of a hybrid of both. And you say Jack Morris didn't get in because he didn't have that Schilling – yeah, that – 1991 moment, of course, in Game 7, but he didn't have. And that's, to me, why he's a Hall of Famer. On top of the fact, when you win the amount of games that Jack Morris won, 250 games here or so, that's not easy to do in this day and age. Understanding that he did pitch a little bit longer than some of the guys in the bullpen era have. So it's tricky because, to me, Morris gets, and I would have voted for him, is not in. So the precedent is almost not set with Musina. But you look at a Jim Bunning, you look at a – I'm trying to think of another – Catfish Hunter I keep bringing up. These were good pitchers, but these were not guys who had 10, 12 years in a row. These were not uh, – of dominance. these were not Pedro Martinez, Randy Johnson-type pitchers. So it's really not black and white. See, Mussina is a guy that maybe if I had more room on the ballot, I'd take, I, I would take seriously, but I would not put him over a Manny Ramirez or a Vlad Guerrero. I mean, maybe you could make the argument over the reliever, Hoffman, but Hoffman has 600 saves. You look at Bonds and Clemens, other than PEDs, how can you put him over those two guys? And again, I don't take the PEDs that seriously. And even if you did with a Bonds, you have to look at his stats before maybe 98, when it, was, it seems like when he, when he was supposedly or allegedly using PEDs, he was a great player. He was a great player. So, I mean, Bonds... Pre-1998, I'll give you some quick numbers here. Pre-99, I should say. 411 home runs, 445 stolen bases, a 966 OPS, three MVPs, and four gold gloves. Post-98, 351 home runs, amazingly, because that's when he set the record after 98 with uh, the 70 home runs, plus 70 home runs. 69 stolen bases, so the speed went away. His OPS went bananas at 1.217, over 1,000, and four consecutive MVP seasons. He was more of a complete player before the steroids. And anybody who watched Barry Bonds' career knows that. Same with Clemens. I mean, Clemens was still a very good pitcher. Clemens was an impact pitcher way before he went to Toronto, the Yankees, and and started to take steroids in Houston and what have you. So that, to me, is is how I see. I mean, the one guy that I think uh, there may be some debate, Sheffield, who I said, again, another guy who had seven premium offensive seasons. The one guy that I have to maybe examine and I've been saying no for a while, and some, some have put him on their ballot. Let me see where his percentage is at here. Um, Larry Walker's only at 16%. Now, Larry Walker, to me, is not a Hall of Famer. 
I ding him for Colorado. Very good player. Uh, more of a complete player. I mean, and if you look at wins above replacement, he's right up there with a Manny Ramirez, who is not a great fielder. And, and Larry Walker's a guy that won gold gloves, had a great arm. He's only got 16% so far support on the ballot. Actually, excuse me, that was last year. Let me bring up this year. I'm sorry, he's up to 24%. So about a quarter of the voters have uh, voted for Larry Walker. He's in his seventh year. Larry Walker is somebody that may need another look, but he's a little short. Doesn't have 500 home runs. The Colorado impact just comes across as a very, very good player. And it's hard for me. I mean, at some point, you got to cut the line. And when you have 10 slots, you have so many good players. Uh, This is what's going to happen. The other guy, and this is someone that's near and dear to Mets fans' hearts, is Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent is every bit the second baseman that some of the other current Hall of Famers are. When you've got second baseman in the Hall of Fame like Joe Gordon, let me bring up some other second baseman that give you some context here for Jeff Kent, who is someone who who very well could be a Hall of Famer. And if I had more slots, I'd take him more seriously. I mean, you got guys like Joe Gordon, Billy Herman, Tony Lazar. I mean, Jeff Kent's better offensively than those guys. There hasn't been. I mean, there's been the Joe Morgans, the Rogers Hornsby's. Those are the top, you know, Ryan Sandberg. I mean, what's the difference between a Ryan Sandberg, really, and a Jeff Kent? I mean, Ryan Sandberg, gloved for sure. But offensively, after he left the Mets and went to San Francisco, and then later on Houston and Los Angeles, but mainly his career in San Francisco, he's probably one of the best second basemen, not the best second baseman in the National League. Won an MVP in 2000, which didn't sell, sit well with Bonds. I mean, the Giants didn't beat the Mets that year in the playoffs, but the Giants had a great regular season. And the reason was because Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent, 33 home runs, 125 RBIs. So, you know, that's another guy that I think might get some consideration later on. And as... As the ballot, as as some of these guys get in and, and the the automatics get in, I think there'll be more consideration for those guys. So, so always this is good fun stuff, mental bubble gum. We'll see who gets. My prediction is this: you're probably going to just see Bagwell and Reigns. It looks like maybe Pudge, but I think when you're seventy nine eight and there's still half the ballots there, I don't know. That's going to be tight. To me, that doesn't seem like enough of a cushion. Although with the purging of some of the old school voters, I feel a little bit more confident. If you're below 75 with almost half the ballots in, like Vladimir Guerrero, Trevor Hoffman, Edgar Martinez, so on and so forth, you're not getting in. But that's progress. And I think the one, the, the positive, the ultimate story here is that we're past the anger of PEDs and maybe Bud Seeley getting elected has a lot to do with it. We're starting to see them recognize the DH and with big poppy David Ortiz retiring – and he'll be up for election in five years. How can you ignore a DH? How can you give Edgar Martinez a, a ding for being a DH? And, uh, you know, I know Kurt Schilling annoys people, but, you know, at 53%, him and Musina, 53 and 61, they're headed towards the right track. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's only Musina's fourth year, and for Schilling, it's only his fifth year. So they got another four, five, five or six years to get in there. So they're in a position where I think as time goes on, as the ballot thins, I mean, guys are going to want to vote for as many as possible. I don't think you should have to vote for 10, but right now you have the argument. You could, you could vote for 12, 13, 14, maybe 15 people on this ballot. So, you know, anyway, that's where it is. All right, let's take a quick break. When I return, Bob Clappish of the record. Let's talk about his ballot. Like I said, Bob voted for Bagwell Reigns, Pudge Rodriguez, Vlad Guerrero, Trevor Hoffman, Edgar Martinez, Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, and Mussina. I know the Schilling vote, especially after he criticized the, the media, almost talked about doing a lynching of the media. 
has not sit well with uh, many in the press, and some are dinging him for his political values and things of like that. So we'll talk about that. We'll get into the match. Jay Bruce, will he be in Port St. Lucie? Bartolo Colon and his departure and the impact and the Mets rotation, and of course his recent column on Wally Backman and uh, why Wally Backman was fired from the organization. And maybe uh, at this point, is Wally now become paranoid with his accusations that he was uh, or he is being blackballed? You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Of course, you can check out the show at MetsmorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can check out the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. We'll be back with Bob Clappish right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back, and uh, joining us is uh, baseball columnist for the record, Bob Clappish. You guys all know him. You could check him out on Twitter, at Bob Clapp. Bob, uh, welcome to the program. How you doing? Happy New Year. Yep, likewise. I'm doing well, counting down the days to spring training. Still got a month to go, but uh, I can't wait. You, you just – let's start out with the Hall of Fame ballot. You published uh, your ballot uh, earlier in the week. Uh, it, Bob, it's a progressive ballot by today's standards. I mean, you've been covering baseball for a long time. Not to knock your colleagues, but a lot of them probably wouldn't agree, not just with the whole uh, shilling perspective on your ballot, but even the DH with Edgar Martinez and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, it depends what part of my ballot you want to talk to. I mean, then statistically, there's some guys on there who I know probably uh, probably come out on a limb a little bit, but I think probably the one that I got the most pushback from or one that generated the most response was my decision to vote for Kurt Schilling. So I think I'll start with that. You know, there's a lot of people in my industry, friends of mine who I respect quite a bit, uh, who said they cannot vote for Schilling because of the morals clause now that he's tweeted that he wants journalists dead. And my response to that is, A, the tweet, that offensive tweet, which he posted back in November, you know, you know, we all know the picture of of a row of a guy being a guy being lynched and rope what was it now rope tree journalists some assembly and needed uh, required you know it was a bad joke I really Something don't like think Kurt yeah, Schilling I wants to, I, yeah I don't think Kurt Schilling wants to kill anybody I mean he doesn't like the press he certainly has no friends in the core you know he's not fond of our profession but I honestly you know it was a bad joke I mean it was in poor taste but I'm not you know, I'm not taking it so seriously, seriously to the point where I think he's actually calling for my murder. I'm going to discount that. It's just a you know bad attempt at sarcasm, and he deleted the tweet and also said that he was trying to be sarcastic. And you know, second of all, the larger point is I really don't care what Kurt Schilling's politics is. It shouldn't enter into discussion 
as to whether or not he belongs in the Hall of Fame. You know, if he voted for Trump, fine, I don't care. I mean, whether he's right wing, fine, I don't care. I mean, Cooperstown is not used as a measure to decide who is politically correct and who's not. And the Hall of Fame ballot shouldn't be used to to punish the politically incorrect. And for guys who say, well, he was an asshole to me throughout my career, excuse my language, well, so what? The you know That ballot is not supposed to be used as a way of getting even. That's not why you become a baseball writer, to settle scores. That ballot, you know, is, is a cherished is a cherished thing, and it's a cherished process. And you 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 deliberate very carefully. And to me, those who get in, those who get my vote, deserve it. And it's not a personal thing with me. It's mostly 100%, I should say, on statistics. And Kurt Schilling deserves it. He won 11 games in the postseason. The guy pitched great. He was one of the best pitchers in October when it counts most, when hitters are most locked in, when the pressure is the most. I mean, he deserves it. To me alone, that, that merits induction into Cooperstown, and he gets my vote, despite what everyone says about him personally. To me, that doesn't matter. And interesting, when you look at Schilling and Musina, you could make arguments either way. They're, they're certainly borderline. I mean, Schilling, you just pointed out the postseason uh, situation, a little bit more of a, of a case. But when I start to go down the list, I went to baseball reference, and I look at – and I'm not knocking Jim Bunning and Catfish Hunter. They had great careers. They had great runs. But they also had periods where they were not Hall of Famers. So it's almost like if you want to go by precedent, and not that this is the court of law, but there is precedent, you know, you, you have to almost elect a Schilling and, and, a, and, a, and a Mussina uh, if you look at it from that point of view. Well, I mean, Mussina also, you know, had 270 wins. And, you know, he did that in a you know, like, he did that in time when hitters were you know chemically enhanced he was pitching in the toughest toughest era for pitchers in the history of the game he's also pitching the toughest division in baseball at the time I mean, but the odds are really stacked against pitchers you know at the time when Messina was winning year after year after year i mean granted he didn't win 20 until his final season but to me i mean his era the 3.68 era you know was better than league average you know i'm reading from my column he was better than league average in 15 of 18 seasons you know and it was uh you know only 11 pitchers have had a higher winning percentage than him 638 11 pitchers i should say who are yeah, in cooperstown i mean 638 winning percentage again given that backdrop when he was accomplishing these numbers to me is impressive it's not just impressive it's good enough to get him to the hall of fame he should be there and it looks like we're close with uh, 67% of, as of this podcast, Edgar Martinez on the ballots that have been made public to maybe some acceptance of the DH. Now, now Bob, you, you were right in your column. I mean, here's a guy, Edgar Martinez. I know he didn't play the field, but if you look at uh, seasons with a 300 batting average, uh, on base over 400, slugging over 500, he has eight of those. I mean, they, that's more than Mickey Mantle. Um, he has been rejected because of the DH. Are we, are we closer now with David Ortiz retiring? maybe to there being a more of an acceptance of the DH uh, as we get, you know, longer into its history? Yeah, I did. You know, it's a great question, Mike, you know, and I think it's just, it's just, it's no longer fair to hold the designated hitter against the guy who played the game so beautifully and was so gifted at what, at, at the single thing he was uh, tasked with. I mean, the DH is a respected part of the game I and mean, you can't mock it and say, uh, you know, it doesn't count. Of course it counts. Very often, the best hitter in the lineup is the designated hitter. You cannot hold it against Edgar Martinez because he didn't play defense. It's not like he opted out. It's not like he refused. He was a designated hitter. And between 1992 and 2000, I would say he was the best right-handed hitter in the game, totally. I mean, 993 OPS. 
tremendous. I mean, there are days he just couldn't get him out. He was that good. Nobody could figure out a way to retire him, to solve him. He was that good, and he was that good at the single thing that he was asked to do. So I'm not mocking the DH. I'm not denigrating it, nor should we when it comes time to filling out that ballot. He certainly belongs. I have with me Bob Clappish, a baseball columnist for the record. You voted for Bonds and Clemens. Um, you know, look, are we seeing the worm turn with them now as well? In the 60s, in terms of support so far, they still have a long ways to go. Um, but I'll tell you what, just a couple of years ago, Bob, with guys uh, like McGuire, uh, and even with uh, Palmero falling off the ballot, I said, no chance. These guys will never get into the Hall of Fame. I'm changing my tune now. I think there's a very high likelihood that Bonds and Clemens will get in. And I wonder, and I know you didn't vote for him. It's only his first year in the ballot. Uh, will we see the support from Manny Ramirez as the, some of these guys get elected and fall off the ballot increase? I think he's maybe part of the victim to the fact that 10 spots, you only have 10 spots, and he might not be the first guy they're going to vote for, especially in his first year of eligibility. Yeah, there's a lot of guys, you know, who use the, the first ballot as, you know, the, really the most hallowed, the most hallowed uh, echelon of Hall of Fame induction. I mean, you have to be legendary. I mean, the best of the best to get in on the first ballot. And guys who inevitably get, and look, there's a difference between get someone who gets in on the first ballot and someone who gets in on the 15th, to me. So there is a pecking order, and some guys deserve it, some don't. Most don't. I don't think Manny Ramirez is a first ballot Hall of Famer. There's just you know too many gray areas. There are too many issues that have to be resolved. But I agree with you. He, along with a lot of other guys from the steroid era, are going to get in. I mean, first of all, you have a lot of older voters who are no longer voting in the process, who are no longer part of the process. Uh, and that will continue. That trend will obviously continue over the next couple of years. And second of all, I think Bud Selig's induction into the Hall of Fame sort of changes the, the calculus. You know, if the commissioner who oversaw the explosion of steroids and did nothing about it, and in fact was guilty, a guilty party in in the era of collusion between the owners in the 1980s. I mean, Bud in fact was called as a witness in, in the case uh, that the players brought against the owners. So, so Bud was in fact a, a guilty party in that. Now, if he could get in on his own track record with his own skeletons, with his own wrongdoings, then I think it really diminishes the argument that Bonds and Clemens and the other steroid users committed these felonies, which would keep them out of the Hall of Fame as well. I think uh, it now merits a much closer and much more neutral case-by-case examination. But ultimately, I think the steroid era is going to be looked at uh, in a different perspective from a different prism, that it was a time when hitters were dominant in the game, by whatever means. It's like looking at the dead ball, that dead ball era before 1920. Pitchers were dominant by whatever means, which included, you know, muddying the ball, cutting it, scuffing it, you know, using darkened balls. I mean, it made for a much different game. I mean, hitters virtually had no chance back then uh, because pitchers were allowed to cheat. Hitters, you know, on the flip side, were basically allowed to enhance themselves during the steroid era, and for that reason, you get these explosive numbers, these cartoonish numbers. I mean, you can say it wasn't real baseball. It was closer to softball, especially in American League, but these were the times, and Bonds and Clemens were just the leading examples of that mentality that it, you did what it took, whatever it took, to hit tremendous home runs, to hit a tremendous amount of home runs, to hit home runs to the moon. That's just the way I think it's going to be seen then. You know, you'll go in, and, you know, 20 years from now, when we go to Cooperstown, we'll see a wing of the Hall of Fame, these players who are from the steroid era, just as we, you know, celebrate pitchers from 100 years ago from the dead ball era. 
Uh, with me, Bob Clapp, is a baseball columnist for the record. Looks like Bagwell and Reigns will get uh, elected if you look at the tracker. I think they've gotten the necessary uh, net gain to get in there. Uh, Pudge Rodriguez, Vladimir Guerrero, Edgar Martinez, Bonds Clemens, we mentioned, then they're probably going to fall a little short, making some progress. Looking ahead, and maybe this is too soon for you, Bob. You got uh, Bagwell and, and Reigns will be off the ballot. They'll be elected. You'll have a couple of slots open next year. Who's next on deck for you with the, uh, you know, maybe some of those, the Sheffield, the Jeff Kent, Larry Walker, uh, you know, do you have any idea of maybe those that really were close, didn't make the cut, or was you solid? Like, these are the Hall of Famers and the guys you didn't vote for, they're they're done in your book as far as your ballot is concerned. No, great question. There have always been my 11, 12, and 13 guys, you know, who just didn't make the cut, but are at least deserving of of close scrutiny and discussion. I mean, Jeff Kent is one. I think he's actually going to get in. But, you know, Mike, sometimes when you have only 10, I mean, certain guys' candidacies just don't look as powerful or as compelling, and you just have to put it off for a year. It doesn't mean that they're not eventually going to get in. But, you know, you you do have to sort of play musical chairs, and, you know, you can't vote for as many as you want. So sometimes, like I said, the 11th guy looks like the fourth guy, number three or number two, you know, a year or two later, depending on who else is on the ballot. So uh, I think I think Kent will have a much stronger chance in the years ahead, and, uh, and I think Sheffield is eventually going to get in as well as soon as Bonds and Clemens get in. So it really is dependent on that. So those are two guys to look for. Who would have thought when David Cohn was traded in 1992, you were covering the Mets, that the Mets would have potentially acquired a Hall of Famer? Now, it didn't work out for him there. Um, but I mean, thinking back, I mean, that was a, a trade. I don't, I don't re- I remember as a fan at that point, I wasn't crazy about the trade. I understand it now from a, a financial perspective, but David Cohn was a popular Met. Who would have thought that back at the time? Oh, I was, you know, I was part of the press corps that loved David Cohn. I still do. I mean, he's one of the few guys I've ever covered who actually understood what it is to be a baseball writer. And I mean, just down to the, to the nitty gritty, the deadlines and, you know, the different type of stories you have to write throughout the night for the different editions. I mean, he was really curious about business, you know, how the sausage was made and what we do on a, a, on a cyclical basis throughout the night. So, I mean, I loved him and I hated to see him go because really when, by the time he was traded, the 86 era had officially come to an end. I mean, I think he was the, the final piece uh, that closed the book on what was to me the most, the most compelling and charismatic and craziest time in my career of covering baseball, probably ever. I mean, we're never going to see a team like the 86 Mets or an era like that between, let's say, 85 and 89. Not just not just for the way they were covered and written about. I'm not just talking about the relationship between the press and the players in the clubhouse. But, you know, the way the, the way they carried themselves in public and the sort of the, the, the ego and the brashness and, uh, and the way the city connected with them. I mean, I know the Yankees, you know, in the late 2000s, in the late 1990s and 2000s, were a model of efficiency and brilliance, and they were incredibly talented, and the city really responded to them. But there was a personal connection between Met fans and those Met teams. Even with only one world championship, there was something unique about it. And Cone, you know, Cone was very much a part of it. Even though he wasn't on the 86 Mets, he was very much a part of that era. So I will miss him. I did miss him. In fact, I mean, I'll, let, me, let me rephrase. I do miss that era and what he represented. So I know this is thing. I'm taking a long. I'm taking the long route to Jeff Kent, but to me, yeah. you know, Jeff Kent coming along really meant that the game was changing, the Mets were changing, my job was changing, and all that all that all that proved to be true in the in the years subsequent to that. Yeah, I, I think I almost wonder if Kent came into a better. And I recently heard Ryan Thompson do a, another podcast and, and talk about 
that clubhouse and some of the stories that, I mean, aren't surprising, but how bad that clubhouse was, and you know that uh, firsthand. You wonder if Ken had come into a better environment. Would he have made it with the Mets, or did he need to get out of New York because of New York and get out of the environment to become who he was? I always wonder that. It was such a bad environment for any young player to come in and be successful. From what are you talking I'm about? Hearing are, you, are, you, are you talking about 92, 93 and on? Or are you yeah, about like when he came in, he's a young player. He's coming into the cesspool. You've got to wonder if, if that plays into uh, someone reaching their potential. Uh, you know, you, you hear a lot about that with the NBA, good players on bad teams, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. I mean, Jeff was young, and, and he was quiet, and he was overwhelmed by the culture there, which had turned very, very hostile and aggressive towards the press. Towards the press. The players really had no connection to the fans, and you know they, really, they underachieved right away. They were terrible, terrible clubs. The 92 and 93 Mets were awful, and it, was, it became you know, very quickly a dark era, a dark age, uh, compared to you know, what New York had experienced with the Mets between 84, 85, and almost up until 1990. So Jeff really didn't belong, and he was never, never given a chance to shine. And the dominant players in that clubhouse, you know, Eddie Murray... And Bonilla, Coleman, you know, really set a tone that was aggressively anti-media. And um, I think that was a war that Jeff can, can't, just didn't, wasn't prepared to be part of or even witness. He just belonged somewhere else at that point. Yeah. A few uh, hits here on the current Mets before I let you go. Um, Jay Bruce, will you see Jay Bruce in Port St. Lucie? What's your gut telling you here? Uh, we're in about yeah. mid-January now. Yeah, I think I think believe it or not, they're going to hang on to to Jay Bruce. I mean, they obviously can't make a good deal for him. I mean, he's got to go at some point, but I don't think that Sandy Alderson is is looking at the ticking clock and say I have to move him in the next twenty nine days. He will be traded, I think, before opening day, but not before pitchers and catchers. You write a nice nice column about Bartolo Colon. Even uh, an interesting comparison. How uh, one of your baseball insiders said, you know, he's a very Maddox like at this point in his career. Obviously, $12.5 million was a lot of money, understanding him leaving, and there was no guarantee he'd have a spot here. It is possible that midseason the Mets are going to look for a Cologne type of veteran to stabilize that rotation if it's not healthy? So it's an interesting situation. Who knows? Maybe the Braves and the Mets, who seem to like to make deals, will, will deal Cologne back to the Mets come July. But it's not impossible. I mean, I wouldn't put any money on it. I mean, the thing you just said really is the key factor here. If the Mets are not healthy, they would probably have to get some help from the outside. But, you know, they are counting on everybody coming back. You know, DeGrom and Mats and, and Wheeler. I mean, Syndergaard's the only one who is, in fact, intact. And who knows, you know, how long it's before he blows out his elbow. Um, and Harvey, obviously, Matt Harvey is the key. And I wrote another column about him the other day. that he'll be the most scrutinized guy in camp. <laughs> Because, you know, he's dealing from an injury that is so rare in baseball. I mean, there's no data point that you can use to, to mark your rehab, let's say, like a pitcher who is coming back from Tommy John surgery. Thoracic outlet syndrome is, in fact, a, a no-man's land for a major league pitcher. Who knows? I mean, Matt Harvey is missing a rib. I mean, they had to remove a rib to create uh, room for the muscles to relax the nerve in his arm. Uh, clinically, the doctors say it was a success. The operation was performed without incident. He's been put back together. But who knows what Matt Harvey will will look like and pitch like with a reconstructed torso. So, uh, yeah, so your point is correct. I mean, there's a lot of ifs with this team, and they may end up having to reach out for help, although I really don't think that, you know, unless the Braves are having a terrible, terrible season, you know, I really just don't see them sending them back to a Cologne back 
to the Mets. I don't see it happening. I think we'll just have to hang on to our fond memories of Big Sexy and be glad for the time we had with it. It's been a weird off season. The Mets signed Cespedes. The fans get excited. And then it's been nothing but minor league signings. And I'm not saying the fans feel that this is a bad team by no stretch, but it's an odd feeling. You don't know what to think because you'd like a couple extra bullpen arms, even a Jerry Blevins, a lefty. Uh, but it doesn't look like they're they're really going to spend the money on that. You'd like to see them take Jay Bruce and maybe reinvest that, but he's probably going to come to camp. It's a it's somewhat of a weird situation where you don't know what to think about this team because of like what you just said, all the questions. I don't think they'll be a disaster, uh, but this is not your typical team that just two years ago was coming off a World Series appearance. You don't have any guarantee that this team will be one of the top you know one or two teams in the National League. I certainly think they're a contender, but it's it's still you got to. You got to wonder how some of these pieces fit. The, the outfield situation is clumsy, to say the least. It's clumsy. You're right. I mean, the math is awkward, and somebody's got to go. You know, obviously it's going to be Jay Bruce, and you just don't know when he's going to go and what the dynamic is going to be like until then. I mean, there's going to be questions asked every single day of Terry Collins and Bruce, and it's going to be wearisome for all parties involved. I mean, it's you know it can't last. I mean, obviously this this equation can't go on forever, but uh, you know the Mets have so many questions that have to be answered but the, you know the, the the upside is if these questions are answered in the affirmative it's not just a good or competitive team it's a great team i mean if that rotation comes back healthy and strong they're going to win the east i mean they're going to be a factor all the way through october um because those arms are so dominant potentially they could take them all the way to the world series but that's an if and those are four or five different ifs you know like i said those questions have to be answered in the affirmative if they're not then you're right. Then it's uh, a team that's going to struggle, you know, and it's it's going to have a weird vibe all summer. But it's too early to say. It's too, it's way too early to have any idea which which direction this is going to go. Last question uh, before we wrap up. Uh, Wally Backman, you wrote a piece about Wally Backman. Wally's reached out to you a couple times since he, depending on whose side you believe, resigned, got fired, whatever have be from the Mets. I've always been a big supporter of Wally. Would have loved to see him get the job over Terry Collins in 2010. I understand why they didn't go that route. But you got to wonder at this point, while he talks about being blackballed, I mean, this is the second or third time you've heard that story from him. And as much as I support Wally, you got to wonder, is he his own worst enemy at this point? Um, because every time he seems to get into a bad situation, I never hear Wally say, hey, you know, I could have done something better. I'm not, you know, I'm just curious your take on that. Mike, I got to disagree with you on this. I mean, he has kept his mouth shut, you know, since September, since the Mets let him go, and and the reasons for his dismissal are, are murky. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm still waiting for a a good explanation as to why the Mets decided they had to move away from a man, minor league manager, who the players universally across the board swear by. I have never met a young Met player who had anything bad to say about Wally, his work ethic, the time and energy he was willing to devote to them. He was completely selfless, selfless when it came to developing the prospects in the system. And I think even Sandy Alderson has said he really was good with the players. Nobody has ever criticized Wally Backman for the job he did and the results that he had. I mean, he won a couple of, of division titles there. He was a PCL, Pacific Coast League Manager of the Year. I mean, you know, I, I don't know why he was dismissed. I really don't. Now, he, you know, he, he has kept his mouth shut since September. Here we are now, just a couple of weeks until spring training, and nobody wants to hire him. I mean, nobody wants to give him a job, at, even at rookie ball, as a coach, as an instructor. Nothing, nothing. He's obviously he's obviously frustrated. He's obviously bewildered. And I think I got him on a day in which he just said he just couldn't he just couldn't handle it anymore. I don't really blame him. I mean, 
it looks like he's whatever you want to call it, Mike, whether it's blackballed or he's being shut out or he's been shunned or passed over. Something's happened to this man that he cannot explain. Um, and no, I don't think that Sandy Alderson is guilty of an official boy blackballing. I don't think he called 29 other teams and said, don't hire Wally Backman. You know, he's a serial killer. Of course not. But I do think Sandy has made his feelings known within the Met organization that he just doesn't think that Wally's personality is a fit, that he wants somebody who is, uh, who can stay on point and is, a uh, uh, a better, I don't know, just just perhaps not quite as raw and unfiltered. Wally is that. He, he's definitely a product of the 80s. So I think Sandy's comments, <clears throat> private comments within the organization, somehow get out. You know, that other Met employees want to say, you know, well, Sandy's not really crazy about Wally. Sandy and Wally didn't really get along. So it's not an official blackballing, but indirectly, Wally has been bad-mouthed. I mean, I've talked to other general managers and other scouting directors and I've asked, what do you think about Backman? And they'll just say, nah, no chance, no way, just a shake of the head with no real explanation. Just say, hmm. nah, it's not worth it. To me, whether you want to call it an official blackballing or, or not, the, the net effect is the same. And I think Wally's just figuring that he's out of options and he's going to go to Mexico and he's, and he's probably never going to be heard from again down there. I mean, it is sort of like this no man's land for managing. I feel bad for him. One, you know, on that point, do you think, and this might be a fan narrative, a fan perspective, he was popular. The fans, and look, anytime the Mets struggled, and I was guilty as the next, you know, when Collins was on the hot seat proverbially, I'll bring Wally in. Do you think maybe that played into the Mets having this guy that's popular with the fan base, that's always was viewed as maybe the next manager in waiting, whether that was ever really the case is more for Sandy Olerson to answer. Do you think that played into it, where they just don't want that kind of uh, manager in waiting scenario, that narrative, that media type of situation that out there? Well, you're half right, Mike. I mean, they didn't want that manager in waiting scenario, and they didn't want a strong, popular ma- manager, period, in general. I mean, that is just not the way Sandy Allison runs his business. I mean, he has made it clear he is the most, the most powerful and dominant figure in the franchise after Jeff Wilpon. And even then, I'm, that's, that's, you know, it's debatable who's number one and who's number two. Sandy wants managers who take orders from him, uh, and that's been true throughout his career, and there's no question that Terry Collins takes orders from Sandy. I think Sandy was worried that if he did promote Wally, A, it would look like he caved to fan pressure, and B, he got a guy who was too much of an independent thinker, who knew more about baseball than he did, knew more about the Mets players and prospects than he did, and politically would, would become more powerful than him. I think that's probably what he's worried about. And also, I think that he was worried that, you know, you know, in today's game, unlike the 80s, in today's game, a manager can't just have reporters wander into the office and you shoot the breeze off the record and you tell jokes, tell stories, war stories. Today, you know, you've got to be on TV twice twice a day, before and after games, yeah. you know, in a, in a very formal, publicized press conference. Uh, and you've got to be good at it. I mean, you can't just put your foot in your mouth and say what you think. You know, you have to measure your words carefully because you're on SNY or you're on Yes, and millions of people are watching. So you've got to be really on point. You've got to be sharp. You've got to watch what you say. Make sure you don't make headlines. And I don't think the Mets were convinced that Wally could handle that responsibility. Now, is that enough to keep him from being hired or promoted? I don't think so. Was that enough to pass him over for a bench coach? To me, I think that was that was the last that was the last straw. That was a stab in the heart when the Mets decided to make Dick Scott 
Harry Collins, bench coach, a guy who had not been in a dugout in 20 years. I mean, that was a slap in the face to Wally, and that's when he realized he was never going anywhere in Alderson's regime. Uh, so the BBWAA dinner's coming up. Uh, anything else you got going on you want the listeners to know about, columns, things you're promoting, what have you? Well, you know, I'm just um, writing some hot stove stuff, you know, for the next couple of weeks, you know, getting ready for pitchers and catchers. Uh, I think I'm going to write a column one of these days, maybe even for tomorrow, about uh, Clint Frazier, you know, the uh, the Yankees hotshot prospect. It was an interesting story. Kevin Kernan wrote in the post the other day. He went down to Atlanta to to spend some time with a kid, and he he loves to talk. I mean, he has a little quote machine, and it's going to be great because so many players today are not like that. I've been that 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 gene has been filtered out of them, and Frazier looks like he's one of a kind, which is great. Uh, I can't wait to cover him, but a he better produce if he's going to compare himself to Reggie Jackson, which he did in in the story, and b He's going to have problems with Joe Girardi because Joe does not countenance that stuff. Joe is a watch-what-you-say manager. So it should be an interesting dynamic you know, down the road. Maybe even this year we'll see. All right, Bob, listen, Happy New Year again. Thanks a lot uh, for taking some time here on a weekend, and uh, let's catch up as the season uh, progresses. All right, my friend? Sounds good, Mike. Thank you for having me on. And that's Bob Clappis. You can check him out on Twitter, at Bob Clapp. Uh, of course, a longtime journalist for the record. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to wrap up some interesting things that he had to say, Bob, about Sandy Alderson. I want to just uh, comment on that and react to that. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at MetsMarizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media. We'll be back with a final segment right after this. And he gets a fastball, drives it deep to left field. It's going, going. It is gone. Goodbye. Jeff Kent with a grand slam home run. And that has really hurt the hopes of the Montreal Expos. Kent with his 20th home run of the year. We're back. Final segment here. That was Bob Clappish. And of course, once again, I want to thank Bob for spending some time with us here on Sunday. Final thoughts here. I think it was very interesting to hear Bob talk about Sandy Alderson and specifically about how Sandy Alderson wants to be the most powerful man in the Mets organization. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. When the Mets were in financial ruin, there was a lot of thought that Bud Selig basically told the Wilpons, hey, this is the guy that's going to clean it up for you, but this is the guy that you got to let run the show, and be in charge. And I'm all about having a strong leader at the top of the organization. I mean, you've seen a lot of this being talked about here in New York recently with Phil Jackson and the Derrick Rose situation and comparing how Pat Riley, who former very strong leader on the sidelines with the Knicks and Miami and the Lakers and how he moved into a front office role. And it's pretty much been Riley's uh, influence throughout the organization. However, he's put people in place or in charge to do their thing or coach, uh, so on, you know, Eric Spolstra and things like that. Here with Sandy, it's, it seems similar, but it also seems different. It seems like he wants his fingerprints on everything. And when it comes to uh, even the ownership group, you know, you got to wonder, uh, you know, it seems like if it was between Jeff Wilpon, Fred's son, and Sandy, I mean, Sandy's going to be the one that's going to get a lot more of the pull here in terms of decision-making. Of course, the budget and the money is being determined by the ownership group. And specifically, you saw that Wally Backman didn't fit into that. Wally is an old-school guy. Wally's a guy that I don't think it's just about advanced statistics. I think it's more to what Bob said, that Wally would probably 
hold court similar to his old manager, David Johnson, before the game, not perform as well in front of a couple of camera interviews. I know for a fact, and this is not speculation, this is not third-hand, it is somebody who played with Wally, who knows Wally. There was a couple incidents where Wally, uh, off the field, had uh, embarrassed the organization. One about some foul-mouthed behavior on a plane back in uh, a few years back in Vegas. Uh, you know, there are many who believe Wally drinks a little bit too much. I mean, these aren't you know scurrilous accusations. These are things that come from pretty reliable sources. With that said, nobody's ever said they don't enjoy playing for him, the young guys, and they all credit him a lot for helping them develop. So the whole idea that guys like Michael Conforto and Brandon Nimmo were stunted because of playing at Vegas with Wally Backman, that's just silly. I just think he's not the type of guy that a lot of people, you know, you know, they, they rubs them the wrong way. I think that's what it is. Now, here's my criticism of Wally. And you guys all know, if you follow me on Twitter, I have thought since 2010 that Wally should have been the manager of the Mets. He would have been perfect. A throwback to the 80s, a connection for Mets fans, a guy that could grow along with the team into contention. They decided to go with Collins, uh, who's done a nice job in some spots. But I also think Collins has a lot of glaring weaknesses, not just with the bullpen. Sometimes I feel he's a little bit soft on this team. And I think Wally would be a little less so. but. Different styles, I guess, is what I would say. But I will say this. As much as I support Wally Backman, he's pretty much now giving Bob, and I know Bob disagreed with this, the same narrative he gave everybody when he left the playing for peanuts South Atlantic League, you know, Arizona situation. Well, I'm getting blackballed. Nobody wants to give me a chance. Well, you got a chance with the Mets. Now, that was prior to Sandy. Omar Manaya brought him in. And specifically, Jeff Wilpon brought him in. It wasn't, just, it wasn't really Omar and Tony Burners out at the time that wanted him. It was Jeff Wilpon that wanted him. And uh, he had a chance, and he moved it through the organization. He made it to Buffalo. He made it to Vegas. I, I think there was a time where you know, maybe when you hear some things where Terry was in trouble, and maybe Backman could have been the guy that at least put in on an interim basis to give him, quote-unquote, his shot. But again, if you listen to what Bob Clappish said, that's just not – Sandy Alderson is the man in the Mets organization. He's going to be as long as he's here, and he doesn't want anybody usurping him. And you heard – it was based on what I believe here. It's, you know, he did not want a popular manager with the fan base down in AAA constantly being the source of we want Wally throughout the year anytime the Mets had a, a, a bad streak. And you saw a lot of that in 2016. And Sandy's a stubborn guy. When he believes in something, he's going to stick with it. And I don't think Terry Collins is his favorite manager by, by no means. But I think also Sandy values loyalty. I think he values obedience. And I think he values consistency. And I think he doesn't want to have a, a, a chaotic organization. Having some consistency year in and year out, I think, plays into his comfort zone, his narrative, what he thinks is an effective organization if you read baseball maverick i mean that's you know sustainability sustaining things year in and year out knowing what to expect having a program in place i think that's that that plays into it so anyway interesting stuff from bob uh you know gives us a little bit of uh, uh nuggets here mets nuggets and a winner where like we said before when i came back after new year there hasn't been a heck of a lot to talk about on the hot stove i still wonder Jay Bruce or not, if you know Jerry Blevins still hasn't signed, I wonder if there's any shot the Mets could find a middle ground and a deal. I really think bringing in an experienced lefty would help them. I know they have Smoker, I know they have Edgin, but you know, 
I think Blevins, and I know that you know possibly bringing in a righty, you know somebody would experience would be nice. But if they're getting two to three year deals, I just don't see the Mets because they've been burnt by those deals going that route. Anyway, um, that'll that that's it. Um, you know, Hall of Fame vote this week, so we'll see how that goes, and uh, it'll be interesting to uh, uh, to see if anything transpires when it comes to the Mets hot stove. Of course, I want to thank Bob Clapp. As you could check out Bob at the record and on Twitter at Bob Clapp. You can check out the show all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Let's see who makes it to the Hall of Fame, and I'll be back next Sunday. Take care. <laughs>